Welcome to the Writer's Block Party Podcast with your hosts Meredith Bond and Prue Warren, where they discuss every aspect of a writer's life, from the craft of writing and editing, through publishing and marketing, and finally into building a global publishing empire. Here is Mary and Prue. Hello, welcome to the Writer's Block Party podcast. I am one of your hosts. I'm Prue Warren, representing writers who do not have much experience. And thankfully, I'm here with a writer with a lot of experience. I am Meredith Bond. I am representing those who have been in this business for a long time. (laughs) Thank goodness. Thank goodness (laughs) you're here. (laughs) Today, we have Natasha Lane. How did you do you, uh, Mary, you do the introduction. Well, Natasha, we have been friends on Facebook for a while. Natasha was actually a guest on my blog years ago. And I don't usually allow guests on my blog. It's just, you know, me, 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 me. But Mm -hmm. she came to me and asked to come on my blog. And I thought she had a great message and something really interesting to say. And so I said, yeah, sure. Come on. Welcome. Natasha Lane, thank you for being here as our sensitivity reader that we can throw questions at. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, just a quick, quick question, Natasha D. Lane, but that's fine. <laughs> ah, well, that's important. And we'll put your um, contact information in the show notes so that people can contact you um, if they're particularly, right, if they're focused and can't find you someplace else, they can go to the show notes. Do your official email address just while we're, just while we're here. It's, what is it? Official email address is technically Natasha at NatashaDLaneWrites.com. There you go. Okay. And so your website is Natasha D. Lane Writes. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Okay. That's good. Um, Natasha, I, 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 as, as I've explained, I am a new writer. I've been doing this for about a year and a half now. And I was pleased and also unnerved by the concept of hiring a sensitivity reader. And I did hire a sensitivity reader for my second book, and it was absolutely eye-opening. It was an astonishing experience, and I had clearly erred unintentionally by reproducing stupid stereotypes, or, mm-hmm. or I don't know. Anyway, it was an extraordinary experience. You, what is your? How do you define the limits of your abilities as a sensitivity reader? Hmm. So. When I have a client, one thing that I do is I always say, you know, the same way you would with an editor, if you don't like one of my suggestions, then you don't have to take it. (laughs) Um, What a sensitivity reader does is just provide, you could say, guiding lights for the writer and gives advice based on their personal experience as someone in a marginalized identity. But if the author does not like the suggestion or they feel that it somehow conflicts with the story the author has every right to say this is my story and I'm not going to take this edit suggestion etc I think those are I think did that answer your question that what you're trying to ask (laughs) yeah well of course it leads me on to many many more questions because because I have I have huge areas I have huge gaps of understanding if I turn to one sensitivity reader and get one view but turn to another sensitive reader and get an opposing view, which, which does happen. 
Mm-hmm. How do I thread that needle? I, my goal is to not, prepare. I mean, I'm nobody, nobody goes around saying oh, I'm bigoted. I'm biased. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody thinks they're clear headed. So having mm-hmm. a sensitivity reader points out where you maybe have made some errors or perpetuated stereotypes or done something careless. Yeah. How do I know? How do I, how do you, how do I know? Natasha, help yeah. me. How do I know? <laughs> yeah. So um, the way the way I look at it is, is this. When you're a person from a marginalized identity, um, whether it's like sexual orientation, religion, um, race, any or a combination of all of those, I think one thing people from more privileged identities need to keep in mind is that, you know, no, one, no group is a monolith. So all Black women aren't going to think the same. All Muslims aren't going to think the same. All, all Jewish people aren't, aren't going to think the same. The same way, like, cisgendered white men are a monolith and they're not going to think the same. Everyone else also isn't going to think the same. So uh, I think I think authors and readers should always keep that in mind when looking into sensitivity readers and things like that. In terms of getting the opposing views, that, that does happen. And that happens because, again, communities not being monoliths. And even within communities, there can be various experiences. So for example, being a Black girl who grew up in the Midwest, right, is probably going to be a very different experience than being a Black girl who grew up on the East Coast like I did, right, because of the geography there. And for for me, I always I always feel like even though there are those differences, black black women are going to have some similarities. But still, there are those differences in like our, our experiences growing up here or growing up there, or having certain economic levels, and other black people maybe not having certain economic levels. So when it comes to deciding which view to go with, I always advise erring erring on the side of caution and asking yourself which view will cause the most harm. Because if one of the, if you think one of those suggestions is, is going to cause harm, then don't go with that. Because I would assume for most writers, your intention is not to harm or offend a community or a group of people. Right. Yeah. Right. Especially if so, you hired a sensitivity reader, then yeah. are, already your goal is to do better and yeah. to be more sensitive and, and to not make these unconscious mistakes that so many people do mistake do yeah. make. Yeah. And the um the other thing I tell clients too, and this I've heard other I've heard other sensitive readers do the same thing, uh, is that there's no guarantee that there won't be a person who's like, hey, I didn't like this or hey, I found this offensive. Right. It could it could be someone from outside of the identity of the sensitivity reader, or it could be someone who has a similar identity. But there are no guarantees. Um basically when you put out any sort of art, whether it's writing a, a movie, right? There may be someone, even if you hire all the sensitivity readers, who says like, you know, I didn't like this for this reason, and they have a right to say that. So, my in the reason I hired a sensitivity reader was because I wrote a story in which the hero is an FBI agent, and I gave him as a partner a black woman. Mm-hmm. He's white, which I am not. I'm 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 very white. Yeah. He's white. <laughs> she's black. They were partners. They're strong allies, and he has a love interest in the book. Who's the mm. who's the other primary character? The the female FBI agent was not. She was a secondary character, but all the same, yeah. she was an important one. Uh, there comes a point at the end where he pushes his lady love behind him, while he and the other FBI agent step forward to confront the bad guy. Yeah. The sensitivity reader said, "Why is the black woman expendable?" Mm. 
And, yeah. and so I was like, well, if I change it so that he's pushing the black woman behind him too, isn't he being sort of the white savior? And if I mm. say, all right, let's have the black woman be the strong hero, then the problem was, why isn't he protecting her? And Natasha, my solution was to make her a white woman. So my attempt at diversity really seriously backfired. I, 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 there was actually, no win. There was no, mm. I decreased my diversity. And my intention had been to, to create a universe that was more typical, where there are people of all colors and people of all faiths and sexual orientations. Yeah. But I had put my foot wrong and it didn't work. And I, I still am, you know, it's been a year and I'm still sort of prickly over the subject. Yeah. How do you thread that needle? Yeah. So this kind of, this kind of touches on what I previously previously brought up before and that it's, you know, there is no, uh, there is no exact right path to go down where you're going to please everyone and where you're going to just, you're going to get it right. You know what I'm saying? Because people from marginalized identities are people. And so we're complex. And so for me, listening to, based on what you told me about your story and, and everything like that, the fact that the black woman was an FBI agent, I probably would have been like, okay, that that's fine. Like, but you know, they're defending, they're both agents. So they're defending this, right. This woman together, or they're trying to fight the bad guy or whatever, you know, right. whatever the scene was and everything like that. Simultaneously, I also understand what the sensitivity reader is saying, because particularly now, particularly, well, forever actually, but particularly after like the death of like Breonna Taylor, there are yeah. a lot of questions around, there are a lot of conversations, not questions really, around like how Black women are expendable. And there are questions, there are conversations both internally in the Black community around how we're expendable. And then there are questions outside. And mm-hmm. it, it gets complex with topics like colorism as well, because very often in media, if um, they're trying to make a character diverse, and I will, I'll give, um, I'll say this, this happens more so in movies and TV shows. I don't think it happens. I don't see that much in books actually, which makes me happy. But um, in movies and TV shows, it's very common that if they're like, oh, we need diversity, just toss in a uh, light-skinned black woman and we'll check off the box and that'll be diversity or a racially um, ambiguous woman. And that'll be diversity and that checks and that checks off the box. So for, so to, sorry, I got off in a little rant there, but to, to answer your question, there is a, there is no, you know, exact, right way to do it necessarily and there is no way that you can write something higher higher sensitivity or maybe you take a lot, of, a lot of jokes and maybe you don't but there is no guarantee that you're going to please everyone from that community or that you may not offend offend everyone the same way if you were writing like a if what you said one of the characters was a white cis woman i'm assuming right correct? right yeah so the same way someone could a white cis woman could leave a review and say like you know i didn't really like how you made this character so weak right and then another white cis woman could leave a review and say oh i really i really loved this character and how she fell in love with the guy and she seemed to really develop a relationship with him etc two counter reviews right? right um but from people who share a similar identity i i definitely i definitely appreciate that what what has me concerned is that when sensitivity reader sent me the 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 manuscript back, almost regardless of whether that final scene where who's protecting who and who's expendable, I had unintentionally reinforced stereotypes that I had I just hadn't recognized. So I even though I actually 
weakened my attempt to create a world that reflected sort of normal world. Yeah. It really did. It was, it was extraordinarily eye opening. And I would Mm. say to, to our listener that going through the, the, the tough, the tough love of a sensitivity read is really, really valuable and really worth it. Yeah, no, definitely. And I am, I, I full on agree, not just because I'm a sensitivity reader, but because I've hired sensitivity readers for some of my work too. Uh, And and which book was that, Oive? Uh, and the, I think it was the fourth book in my prior child series. One of the characters is disabled. I am an able-bodied person. So, and even though, uh, even though, like, I have known people who are disabled, I have had conversations with people who have different who have different abilities and things like that. I was still, I still decided that I needed to hire a professional sensitivity reader, and so I did. And for, for my upcoming book, I know I'm probably going to have to hire someone who's Latinx too, because I am an African American woman. I'm not, I'm not a Latinx or Afro Latina. So, I, I think I understand from the writer perspective that it can be a little like what's the word I'm looking for here it can maybe it can be a bit challenging daunting one of those words it can you know, it can give you a little a, a bit of a strange feeling to be that level of vulnerable and um to have right. to really be self-reflective because one thing I think self uh, one thing I sell I think sensitivity readers do for people is it makes you stop and kind of like look in the mirror and say huh what implicit bias do I have that I might need to work on so I I'll tell a quick story here I had a client who lovely she was lovely woman. Uh, she was so nice. I don't remember how I got connected with her. I think through a mutual writer friend, we had connected and she wrote, she had written a book before a nonfiction book and she did work in the criminal justice system. And she had a lot of work, a lot of work around supporting like black and Brown men. And so she was, when as, as I was speaking to her, I could tell like, you know, she was an ally. She's trying to educate herself and she's trying to really stand in solidarity but when she sent me her work, I was really surprised because uh, her work was, it was, it was entertaining. It had a lot of potential, but it had a lot of like big red flags. And so what mm. I did is like, I went through, I read it twice, uh, read it twice, twice, because it was a short story, so I could get through it pretty quickly. But I read through it, um, left my feedback notes. And I also explained after each comment, I, I would then reply and explain why this is harmful um, and wh- how it could be offensive and with her with her I also got on the phone and we talked I don't do that all the time people are different right but I just want to make sure she fully understood but I was really happy that when she got back to me she was like wow once I thought about it I she said to me like once I thought about it, I was like why would I write that she wasn't aware you know she was a um, sister to the sister white woman from a doing very well economically as well so she was from a different um, class level than I would say most people but she just was like once it was explained, at least in her case, once it was explained to her, she was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I ever did that. I can't believe I inserted this stereotype or that character that way, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, she was like, thank you for like letting me know so now I can make this story better. But yeah, sometimes, sometimes I think people just need to be reminded. And I think, I think I answered your question. <laughs> I rambled on a bit there. <laughs> no, no, I think it's very important. And the word that you use that really like, yep, that's it is vulnerable. It makes the writer it's very hard to uh, to evolve or to recognize implicit biases that I didn't know I had and mm-hmm. seeing her reaction to what I thought was a really nice book right it yeah. was it was a feeling of tremendous vulnerability and mm-hmm. it took me quite a long time i mean like days to go 
shit, I think she's got a point. I think there's, mm -hmm. I think there's legitimacy to this and it's going to force me to rethink some things. And that is a very, very hard path, but mm -hmm. writer, your path is hard and it's your duty to attempt to evolve and improve those implicit biases. You don't see them. That's the point. Yeah. yeah. That's the no, point. That's agreed. Yeah. Another little side, side rant here. I once, uh, I was dating this guy <laughs> and he was, uh, he was in law school and part of his class was he had to take a test on implicit bias. Oh. He's a white guy. He took the test. And I remember I was stopping by to visit him. So I stopped by his apartment and he looked just distraught in his apartment. And I was staring at him and I was like, are you okay? Like, I just came to the door. I was like, are you okay? And he didn't want to talk at first. And then um, he finally told me that he took the implicit bias test and that it revealed he had implicit bias. And I was like, well, yes. <laughs> I, I just, I looked, I was very confused as to why it bothered him so much because I thought to myself, well, yes, you have implicit bias. One, because we all have implicit bias, but also because he had lived a life very different than most people um, uh, lived in gated communities, lived in like very expensive cities in America. Um, to give you an idea, I remember he, he and I were talking one day, he was talking about vacations he took as a kid. And he goes like, you've never been to Hawaii. And I was like, well, no, my family, we just, we didn't go. And he asked me about three more times because he was so shocked. So he lived, he, you know, he had lived a very vastly different life than the majority of people, but he had this thing about like, I'm a good guy. So when it was revealed that, well, okay, good guy, you have a, you know, you have some implicit bias there that you probably need to work on. It just like rocked him to his core. And I was, I, I was like, to me, I was kind of like, I don't know why you're so surprised. <laughs> well, you know, I, I feel like I'm in his shoes after that mm -hmm. sensitivity read because I, you know, I'm, I'm a democratic man. Yeah. I'm liberal. There can't yeah. be any problems. Not with me. Oh, yeah. you're kidding. That's fascinating. So it was horrible and very eye-opening and and very and very valuable. So let's talk a little bit. Mary, I'm sorry I'm talking over. No, you, that's okay? fine. I'm I'm looking <laughs> okay. up a book. So keep talking. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um to to speak to the writer who is listening, Natasha, let's talk a little bit about why you should hire a sensitivity reader and pay them money for the education they're going to give you, as opposed to rely on the fact that I have black friends, therefore I can write black audiences, right? I can yeah. write black characters. Yeah. Hire versus rely on friends. Yeah, no, definitely. So the first to explain why you should pay a sensitivity, a sensitivity reader. Firstly, it's just time and basic things in the system that we work in. If someone's doing something for you and they're, you know, and it's not, volunteer work, which is the exception for like charities and whatnot, you should pay them. And that just is what it is. In terms of more, I guess, mental, emotional reasons, sometimes being a sensitivity reader, you know, you have, it's, it's difficult reading something that unintentionally, I'm sure, but still reinforces a lot of stereotypes or reading things that can be just be very like triggering or traumatizing. You know, there are even, for me, there are even certain like scenes in movies that I just like have to skip over sometimes because they 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 don't make me feel great when, when I when I watch them you know you know what I mean so hmm, I'm trying to think of a of a good I can uh, give a good example let me know if I'm giving too many stories <laughs> no keep going I love your stories uh, this is good <laughs> I can give a great example um, and this was technically an unofficial sensitivity because he and I were working for the same publishing house time um this gentleman had asked a few writers to like look at his short story that was coming out 
and it was a romance not a, ro- a romance short story. You know, there aren't a lot of male romance authors, so I was intrigued yeah. <laughs> immediately. Me too. I yeah, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I want to see. You know, what this is about. I had spoken to a few men um, about who wrote romance about like um, how they felt about male characters in romance. So I was like, oh, this is interesting. So I told him like, oh, I'm happy to read your story and everything like that. And I started reading it, and I remember I just struggled through that it was a it was very short but I struggled through it so much because the entire time as I was reading it there was just this heavy feeling of like holy holy shit this is so fucking offensive like it was like this (laughs) holy shit so fucking offensive I cannot even the cover because he only gave me the title of the short so when I when he sent it to me and I saw the cover I was like please don't be one of those books please don't Please don't. And I start reading it. And uh, to give you a summary of what it's about. So essentially, it's about these um, two young white men who are about to ship out to war the next day. I think, I don't remember which war he specified, but that doesn't matter. Anyway, they're about to go to some sort of conflict. And one of them is a virgin. And (laughs) essentially, his pal decides that Hey, got to get laid first. Yeah, you got to get laid first. You can't be a virgin going to war. Um, which the the there was part of me that also was like, okay, I roll, but I mean, oh sure, whatever. I don't, I, I don't know. So far, <laughs> that, I'm that, yeah. Right. So his um, so they're they're in the hotel room. Um, and the main character and the main character's friend leaves, and then he lets a woman in, who is the prostitute who's supposed to like you know seduce him and everything. Um, she's a black woman, and as he's describing her, I just kept thinking like. This is hitting so many like Jezebel stereotypes right now. Like the way she was talking to him, the way he was like describing her body. And he, and what ha- the part that was really just shocking and just disturbing, it just, and hurtful was that he wrote the white male character as this innocent, naive young man who knew no better, knew nothing. And he wrote this, the black woman as kind of like this aggressive seductress who was going to teach this young country white boy something. And I was like, no, I was like, absolutely not, sir. No, no, no. Um, and it was, it was hard getting through, to be quite honest. It was like, I'm trying to find the right words to describe it. I put the short story down several times and I had to take several deep breaths because I was just like, how can someone write this sort of thing in this modern age and i think for people from marginalized identities you you are it was you are sometimes if you when you slip into a sense of like security that security is very small that time period where you're there is very small because someone will remind you that you are black that you are a woman that you're gay that you're a muslim that you're jewish like someone's going to remind you one way or another Mm -hmm. and that i was kind of new to the publishing industry uh at that time and he quickly reminded me he and some other experiences quickly reminded me that I am a black woman um, and that people still, that people still view black women in a certain, in a certain light. So I'm, that, that was the story basically. And I sent him the feedback. I took a few days because I had to process it. And he just told me that he told me, no, he was like, you know, I want to go. And he said, he said, he claimed that this was how he lost his virginity. So I said, okay, if that's how he claims it. So I, he, so he went ahead and published it. Um, to my knowledge, at least, I didn't, I wasn't buying it. No offense to him, but I, I wasn't buying it. Um, and he, you know, he had that right. And I said, 
So how do you tell somebody this? How do you yeah. say, listen, what you've written is really offensive? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think I'm the worst person to ask that question to only because I can, I'll just say it. Like I can be very, <laughs> I can be very candid about things. Uh, and I'm just like, you know, I'm always polite, but I will like just say to them, Hey, this scene was offensive because of this reason. This scene was offensive because of this reason, et cetera, et cetera. And I do usually do like a bulleted list with a few paragraphs that generally explain the issues in the story. But for me, it's not, I, it's not like it doesn't, I don't know. It's for me, it's easy. I'll just tell people like you hired me to do this. You want me to be right. honest. I don't really like lying. So I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. I also believe that people grow in discomfort, not all the time, obviously, but I think sometimes we people need to be a little uncomfortable to really think about things. And so if I can make someone a little uncomfortable so they can think, oh, maybe this character, oh, maybe that scene or, oh, that word is offensive, then I think I've done something good, you know? And I also mm-hmm. think for people from marginalized identities, it's never our job to make someone from a more privileged identity feel good necessarily. So like my main job in life is not to make white people feel comfortable on, right? Um, and if a writer who's white hires me, my main job is not to make them feel comfortable. My job is to be honest with them. Right. And then if they don't take your advice, then there's nothing you can do, right? Yeah. You, yeah. You, um, if they don't take your advice, you just like step away and you're like, okay, I mean, you know, that's that's fine. That's, that's, yeah, that's your choice. And yeah, I don't, I never, I never get upset if someone doesn't take my advice. I'm just like, "Eh, okay. That's really nice. I mean, that's, that's really strong because that's strong. um, I get, I have to tell you, I have, I edit, you know, other people's work and I have a historical author whose work I edit, who has a series set during the civil war mm-hmm. and her white hero goes home to his home where he meets the, his, the nanny for his children. And she is black. She's a slave. Yeah. And he, the way she speaks, mm-hmm. I found so offensive. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm white. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, you can't have him speak like any standard American English white person and have mm-hmm. her speak in this uneducated, stereotypical, Black slave sort of speak. And I said, you can't do that. It's offensive. And she Mm -hmm. said, no, that's just the way I think she speaks. And I was like, Mm -hmm. no, don't do it. But but it's it's an interesting question, though, because, well, first of all, we've all been trained by Hollywood to believe that's how every slave ever spoke, right? Right. But also, there are cultural standards that are acceptable in 1850 that are not acceptable now. So when you're writing a historical, which era's sensitivities do you reflect mm-hmm. in your book? And it was yeah. so funny because also he made this this slave educated. She could read and she taught Bible to her friends. And it's like, well, then go the extra step and don't have her speak in this stereotypical way. Yeah. Yeah. It's similar to the conversations that people used to have. I mean, I'm sure there are people still having them, but people used to have about like Huckleberry Finn and the Mm -hmm. use of the N word in Huckleberry Finn. 
And, you know, some people, some people said, said it should be removed from the book completely. Other people were like, well, for that time period, that is the word that they would have used specifically to the situation you're describing, Meredith. I think it's not, they, I obviously haven't read the guy's story. I don't know, know them gentlemen, but it sounds like he may have watched Gone with the Wind yes. a few too many times. And he kind of pulls from that. And if he's an older man, that probably is very, he probably has watched Gone with the Wind. I I think you bring up a good point in that uh, he made the made this woman an educated person. She was even teach to the point where she was teaching other people. So the idea that she would be speaking in some very exaggerated, I get, I don't know what it was, some very exaggerated stereotypical stereotypical language is even more unbelievable now. Because if you're if she's educated, she knows how to read and write and and everything like that. Then you she probably would understand how to speak more, some people would say eloquently uh, or air, I'm air quoting here, but eloquently or like prof- or professionally, you know? So for, based on what you said for that, I would have honestly said the same thing. I think, I think we get caught and we get caught in like one representation of a person or a profession or which slavery was not a profession, apologies for that, but no. obviously it was forced um, labor, labor. I think people get caught into that and they think that is how every person who looks like this or does this has to talk. And that's, that's not the case. I, I would have responded the same way that you did if that if I'm answering your question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I was just, I was so frustrated that she refused to change the way this person spoke. Yeah. I would, I think that people, yeah, I, I okay. Basically I would have agreed with you. I, I 100% agree with you. <laughs> I, and I, I, again, I have a retro story, so I don't know how exaggerated it was, but if this woman, the slave, particularly if she, if the slave is like working in the house and, you know, she, she's hearing other people speak and whatnot, she would probably speak like them, I'd, I'd assume. So yeah, I would have responded the same way you do. You did. Yeah. How do you, how do you come down on writing a historical that's reflecting the attitudes of the time versus writing historical that reflects current attitudes? I hmm, I was going to say, I don't really write a lot of historical fiction, but my current series is a time travel series, so I have had to kind of tackle this issue a little bit. I personally go with writing what is ever realistic for that time period, but I don't, how can I explain this? I think you can make a time period piece accurate, but you don't have to make it grotesque, I guess you could say, right? Like we can talk about, I think we can talk about the horrors of slavery and other historical events without trying to make it like gore porn, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. How prominent does a character have to be in a book in order to uh, suggest you need a sensitivity read? Secondary character, tertiary Mm. character? Yeah. I honestly, I think that's a, that's a decision for each author. But for me personally, I, if the character is going to, if the character is going to do something beyond speaking, like just having general like dialogue, I'm going to probably get a sensitivity reader for them. So like, if they're a main character, certainly we we, we certainly right. um, a sensitivity reader. I also think that if the author is going to go into more detail about the character's backstory, or the author is going to have the character do something that is related to their religion. Uh, then they probably need a sensitivity reader. So like if I had a Muslim character 
and the character was the there was a part in my book where um my character had to stop and pray and i had to mention why the character was stopping at this time to pray and everything like that that to me that would be enough reason to hire a hire a sensitivity reader because that's showing that i'm kind of exploring a little bit about this character's background i'm trying to show the reader more about this character's background they're obviously engaging with the main characters to the point where I want a sensitivity reader to check me and let me know, hey, this is a great scene, but here's the real reason. Here's the real reason this character would have done this. Or actually, if this happened, the character would have responded in that way. So, so really what we're talking about here is on the, the flip side of implicit bias is awareness of implicit bias. That you you just have to be aware that you may not be seeing, you may not be perceiving your story the same way as someone else would. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and the thing about being a writer too is that no one is ever going to perceive our story the way we perceive it, and that's why we sometimes get negative reviews. <laughs> um, some people, some people are going to love our story. Some people are not going to love. Some people are going to like the fact that uh, the character wears combat boots, right? Other people can be like, "Oh God, those are so uncomfortable," you know, things like that. So, um, so you, so you again, you can't, you can't really um, please everyone and you have to I think when a artist a creative person releases their work into the world you are opening it up to be interpreted right there is the movie the movie Fight Club that I'm sure we've all probably seen right for some people for oh um, wait that that's a good example yeah so Fight Club so for some people when they first saw Fight Club I think it read to them as like a yeah boys manpower yeah go out and just like fuck each other up like that you know like a, a very shallow understanding um and even like when i first saw it as a kid i think i didn't fully grasp fight club but when you watch it as an adult and when you actually like see people analyze it and everything that like, you realize like oh this is actually kind of a critique on masculinity and like it's kind of talking about patriarchy and about like capitalism a little bit too and you realize like oh this is deeper than what i originally imagined and this is I, like I, you know, the author, the author may, the author creative may have intended, intended it to be this way, but I interpret it a completely different way. It's the same with, oh gosh, what is that? It's a movie. It's not a TV show. Uh, 500 Days of Summer, which have you, have either of you seen I that? So. Yeah. I, think so. I, I, I love that movie. But again, when I first watched the movie, I thought it was, I, when I first watched the movie, I kind of took it as summer was breaking the male lead's heart. And I was just like, oh, this is about heartbreak and about romance and oh my gosh it's so difficult but in reality now going back and watching it as an adult and also watching film critics because that's something I sometimes do I realized that it was also but it was also about yes heartbreak but it was also about how this male character was putting all these pressures on Summer and how he was putting her on a pe- yeah he was putting her on a pedestal right so again the creators of and I believe this is 100% accurate the creator of the 500 days of summer had one intention. The writer had one intention with the story to show one thing, right? But when it came out, audiences were just like, oh, she's a horrible woman. She broke Joseph Gordon-Levitt's heart. I know, he's so cute. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But going back now, you're like, actually, he was kind of an asshole. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Well, my my version of that is the the best of the Pixar movies, you know, I watched movies with my son when he was growing up and most of them were like mind numbing, but you come across really good Pixar movies where clearly they were writing for children and adults at the same time. And he and I were having very different experiences. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely in your perception. 
I, incidentally, I've turned off the timer. I think you're too fascinating. <laughs> let me let me ask you a practical question. How much does a sensitivity reader charge? Mm-hmm. So that depends on the that depends on the sensitivity reader. I usually charge per word, and my rates are like are pretty low. I recently updated them, so now I'm struggling to remember why I updated them, what I updated them to. Um, <laughs> most sensitivity readers that I've encountered charge per word, um, not hourly or per page. I always suggest that authors, indie, indie authors in particular, because obviously when you're indie author, you're putting out the money yourself. I always suggest that they budget for a sensitivity reader. And if you have a particularly long novel and you need the sensitivity reader to read that entire novel, before you before you start writing, just put that amount in with like the book cover and editing costs. Most sensitivity readers I know charge like on the lower end some people charge like maybe like five cents per word and I believe the reason behind that is like that some a lot of sensitive readers are just trying to do a little good <laughs> you know like we're trying to we're trying to make it so that someone who may share parts of our, our identity can read this story and not have that first initial shock of holy shit this is harmful this is hurtful right. stereotypical embarrassing you know things like that Right. So, you know, most sensitivities are in it for the good, rather, I'd say. Uh, but again, time and labor, right? So right. I would say, oh, the other thing I want to bring up to you is like, you, if you're hiring a sensitivity reader, you don't have to hire them for your entire book. You can, if the, if the character or person is going to be featured in the entire book and they're going to be playing a critical role, but they're only in the, if you have a series and a character is only in the first half of the first book, then just have the sensitivity reader the first half of the first book. And if they, uh, come back in the second or third book, then have them, then have the sensitivity reader come back and read the second and third book. But, you know, you don't have to hire them for the entire novel. And I've had clients where I've told them, like, if you only want me to read the first 50 pages where this character is actually around versus reading the entire thing where the character is like not there and they're not really in the plot anymore, we can definitely do that. So I would keep that in mind. I would say to give a ballpark estimate, because again, you have to talk to your sensitivity reader to really get the get an idea. I would say for like a 60, 60k book i would say probably expect to spend around like 350 to 500 uh to 500 500 <laughs> for the entire that's, book that's that's about what i paid for mine and i i decided in the end that it was money extremely well spent because of how yeah. much i learned about myself yeah which identities will you read for which marginalized so, communities are you prepared to represent <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I I uh, just do b- black women pretty much cis- cisgendered black women specifically. I've never had anyone approach me to read uh, like a trans a transgender black woman. I don't think I think if I read that if I read a book where there was a transgender black woman, I could read it for the black parts, but I would not be able to speak to the transgender part because I'm, I'm cisgendered. I sometimes I do get specific with clients, and I'll tell them you know if you're looking for a black woman who need the who has the experience of like living in a very rural area. And living in, an, earth, in uh, an urban area, I can do that. Also, as a Black woman who went to a PWI, which is a predominantly white institute um, for college, I am oh. used to navigating white spaces, but I also grew up in a very Black household. So I have, you know, I have those kind of interesting experiences. And if a client is looking for someone who has those specific experiences, then I'm happy to hop in and support. And what about historicals? Oh, yeah. Historical. Have I... Mm, that that one piece was historical fiction. It was technically fantasy, actually, because there was magic and stuff involved. But yeah, I, I'm happy to do um, sensitivity reading for historical fiction. 
Uh, how do I find a sensitivity reader? Uh, how do I find, how do I find a um, handicapped? Not, that's not the word I want. The word I want is disabled, disabled right? Or differently or, abled. Yeah. Differently abled. How do I go about finding a sensitivity reader for the marginalized community in my book? Yeah. So I think there are a few ways. The, f- the first one is there is a, I might have to get you the the actual name because I'm struggling to remember it, but I believe it's called Salt and Sage, which is a Twitter account. And they actually have a host of sensitivity readers of different identities. Mm-hmm. And you can go to their website and look at the different sensitivity readers and like talk to someone and they can help connect you with someone basically. They start, uh, they started following me because I was talking about being a sensitivity reader on Twitter. Uh, the other way I found sensitivity readers is, this is, this is the millennial in me, but uh, I literally just go on Twitter and be like, hey, I need someone from this identity to help me read this book. Um, and, you know, I'm obviously willing to pay. And someone will reply or message me or a friend will say like, oh, I saw your tweet. I know someone who is a sensitivity reader who would be happy to do your work for you. So those are the ways I've found sensitivity readers. And those are the ways I've seen other people do it. I don't think there's like a catalog necessarily the way there is of like editors or uh, cover artists and things like that. I think those are easier, easier to find, you know, um, I'd also imagine that there are probably Facebook groups for sensitivity readers as well. Uh, I'm not a part of any, because like, I, like I said, I go on Twitter and I tweet out like anyone da, 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 uh, and things like that. But yeah, those are, that's where I would find a sensitivity reader. Would you hire yeah. someone if they weren't, if they weren't a sensitivity reader, someone says, yeah, I'm a transgendered Latinx. I'll be happy mm-hmm. to read your book. Would you say, yeah go ahead? Or would you say, wait a minute, I need the services of someone who's done this before, who's thinking in terms of working with authors? Mm-hmm. How would you do yeah. it? So I would always, I would always try to find someone who is a sensitivity reader professionally and someone who um, has some experience or has like some, or someone who can come with a few, you know, thumbs up in the, in the assurances. But if I really could not find any a sensitivity reader who fit my character or character's identities, and, you know, the time crunch was on, I would definitely just try to find someone who was willing, who's from the identity and have them like read my story and I would still pay them. Okay. I have one last, you know, wild softball yeah. question, wild ball, soft, soft, <laughs> a, a wild question, which is if I'm writing paranormal or writing science fiction and I've created an entire race, an entire mm-hmm. species from a different planet mm-hmm. and they are marginalized yeah. Would I hire a sensitivity reader? I mean, can you can you can you blend those two things together? I would definitely hire a sensitivity reader. And here's why. You know, human <laughs> humans, we are we are very, very interesting. And I think I think sometimes humans we think that we are just we are just so original and so creative and so complex and no one's gonna ever think of this or get this. This is the first true original thought. You know, people think things like that. And the reality is a lot of fantasy races reflect rate uh, races that people have seen or heard about or experience, experience in real and the real world, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. They fantasy races are just reflective of the real world. And I know sometimes people are just like, no, no, this is my thing. It has nothing to do with that. But the reality is we are all we are all uh, living in this very, you know, racist, sexist, homophobic, uh, Islamophobic, et cetera, society. So, the fact is, even even when we're making up fantasy races, we are going to unconsciously, in my opinion, unconsciously be pulling from experiences 
that we have had with people from different communities. And I think the, I'm not a, I might offend some people, I'm not a huge Star Wars person, so I can't remember what the group is called in Star Wars. But years later, people, um, years later, um, since, you know, Star Wars has come out and everything, people are still having conversations about how that one group is very reflective of different Asian cultures, but just like blended together. And some people have said, you know, like it's actually kind of offensive because the writers basically just took some like Asian stereotypes and like Asian style as clothes clothing and put it on these this fantasy race in Star Wars and they're like oh here they are but a lot of people read this these characters as Asian you know and I think uh I think if you are a person from a marginalized identity just even seeing characters who face oppression you can kind of what's the word you can kind of connect yourself with them so like for fan for fan for a lot of fantasy readers fairies are always the ones that are getting the shit into the stick and every and every you know and everybody <laughs> fairies are always the ones getting the shit and end of the stick. But when you look at what's happening to fairies, like uh, um, what's happening to fairies, and <laughs> some and some stories, <laughs> I'm talking about them as if, as if they're real. That just sounded really weird to me for a minute. I was like, wait, <laughs> um, you're stories, you're with more writers. You're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> in some stories, when fairies are being displaced, for example, and forced to leave their their land, right? Doesn't that speak to what a lot of native people have? experience right and so uh, i would imagine that a native reader could read that story and have a moment of if you're on if you're on instagram you'll get this reference the i imagine that a native reader could read that story and have a moment of like holy shit did this play about us you know <laughs> that, like that that sort of moment and similar to what story, what story was i'm trying to uh i can't remember i can't remember what it was but fairies were being forced to they're basically being forced to be slaves basically right they're being kidnapped by humans and being and be slaves and that's just how they were they were they were raised and as a black person you can connect with that because growing up um, particularly for me because I was all I was raised primarily by my grandparents who were closer to slave in terms of like time timeline closer in proximity to like slavery and actually grew up in the south during Jim Crow and everything like that so for me, when I was reading this story, I was, I had another moment of like, oh, this, this feels like slavery. Like this, this is what, you know, this is what's happening here. And even, sorry, I'm rambling, but <laughs> even I would say the way the slave character, the, the fairy slave characters were depicted was very reflective of like what happened with slavery in African American, in African Americans. So the fairy characters, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to educate them because we don't need them being smart. We just need them working. That's mm-hmm. what they did with, that's what they did with actual slaves, like with, with African Americans, you know, ha- having like house slaves and field slaves. That's what also what happened with like African, African Americans. Right. And also well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Avatar, which is this, this natural, pure, good community being invaded by the bad, evil corporate violence providers uh yeah, does does look a lot yeah. like does look a lot like na- the native american path so i definitely i definitely see your point you'd have to you'd have to decide what flavor of sensitivity reader you needed for your for your paranormal but it's yeah. it's fascinating yeah i wouldn't i would say i wouldn't say fl- i wouldn't say flavor only because <laughs> um, people have people have moved away from um I wouldn't say flavor. That's all. <laughs> you you can add that if you want to, but I wouldn't say I wouldn't say flavor. Uh, people have um uh, moved away from using any sort of like food as sort of uh, terms right. or things like that. So yeah, but that's fine. I was just like, oh, no flavor, no, but <laughs> no flavor. 
let's flag that one. Little red yeah. circle around that one. Let's rethink that one, shall we? Okay. <laughs> um, I would love it if you would find the Salt and Sage website so that I can put it in the show notes. Yes, I will. You can will. you can email me later. Awesome. That would be great. <laughs> and just to before we finish up, Natasha, can you tell us about your own writing? Yeah, yeah of course. Ah, oh, gosh, where to where to begin? I'm really excited that I released a book a few months ago. So. When I first got into the publishing industry, I was trying to get a fantasy novel published that I had been working on for years and years, but I kind of stowed it away and I brought it back out, et cetera, et cetera. When, when I finally got a publisher who was interested, they essentially told me, you know, we can tell you can write, but you don't really want to write fantasy when you write romance for us. So I wrote romance for a little bit. And that was, that was interesting. That was fun. But romance, fantasy is really where my heart was. So I was like, uh, like, you know, <laughs> I was like, I, I think I want to go back to fantasy. And so that is how I, that is how I eventually led to um, my first fantasy series being published, which is the Pariah Child series. Um, and it centers on a main character, Serafina, who is growing up in a very small country town um, and is transported to a magical world where she has to basically restore balance, right? So that's my first series. And the series that I'm working on now is a time travel series. And it takes place in partially takes place in modern day Baltimore where magic is the norm and all, and everyone can use magic and it's very normal to see people casting spells and whatnot. And one day my main character, Kiana uh, is trying to help her younger sister perfect a transportation trans spell. And accidentally her sister sends her back to the French revolution. And so Kiana has, yeah. So Kiana has to figure out how to get back to her time. And um, yeah, I just finished the second book in that series in February and I announced the release of the third book uh, coming this October. So it's going to take some time to write it. And yeah, I'm really excited series. I, yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. That's that really must have taken a lot of research. Yeah, it did. And here's the thing about me. I hate, I hate research. I, <sighs> well, I, I do. I hate research, but I do it because I, I have to right? So the, the first book takes, like I said, Part of it is in Baltimore City and then the other part during the French Revolution. And I was like, I know a little bit about the French Revolution, but I don't know a lot. And there's a lot of information. <laughs> Talk about a rabbit hole. You're going to find yeah, that exactly. for a long time. But because my character Kiana is Black, I also was trying to find resources around what it was like to be a Black person in France at that time, which was even more difficult because at that time... There weren't a lot of black people in France. I, France France did participate in the slave trade, but they had their slaves in colonies primarily. So not actually, and so there were actually a lot of black people in France. Like most black people at that time who were air quotes in France were on French col were in French colonies, if that makes sense, right? If that, that makes yeah. sense. So yeah. I had to, I had to come up with a way to explain one, why is there this black woman who speaks horrible French, you know, traveling around with French nobility because she meets the Marquis de Lafayette and he is, yeah. Lafayette! <laughs> yeah. I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have to explain that. I also have to consider how are people going to actually react to her, right? Um, are people going to see her as a servant, as a slave? Are they going to are they going to mistreat her? Um, and are they going to buy her backstory? Because she comes up with she comes up with an elaborate backstory about why she's in France and all these sort of things. So I had to do research into that too. And there's just because there weren't a lot of black people in France at the time, it was difficult coming across information to explain, like, yeah, this is how the like white French people view black people at this time in their actual country. So yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> 
Did you use a sensitivity reader? No, I didn't. Not for that one. No, I just did the, I just did the basic research and I wrote it from there. So I don't know. I I think you could have gotten a French person. I could have, but I not I marginalized. Have, I don't think, I'm yeah. not. I'm not falling, and it's not marginalized. I'm with yeah. You. I was going to say okay. like no. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen um, Bridgerton? Oh my gosh, I love I I love Bridgerton. I mm. we could talk about that off the off the podcast. I love Bridgerton, and I will say Anthony and Kate are a superior couple <laughs> to Daphne and Simon. I don't care what anyone says. Anthony and Kay are the superior couple. I think, you know, I, I am 29, so I'm going to be 30 in November. And perhaps when I was a bit younger, I would have been like, oh my gosh, Daphne and Simon, that fire, that heat, that's fun and nice and everything. But, you know, I think there is something very comforting about a nice, cool, calm ocean that occasionally gets a few waves in there, you know, um, which people, I think people who like Daphne and Simon like the one, they like all the sex scenes. Let's be honest. That was the first like That's right. That's right. It's it's pornography with a plot. That's right. That's right. And I I understand why people like it. I get it. I mean, I I Simon the actor is a very handsome man. Daphne's very very gorgeous. They were a cute couple, but I feel like Kate and Anthony were a bit more realistic, and I like the way I think Kate and Anthony have a more of a relationship that will sustain in mm. the long term. If that makes sense. Yes. Yes. I so can't. I agree. I, I think Bridgerton is interesting and I think Hamilton is interesting as as our culture becomes aware of implicit biases creatively there are some people who are doing some very interesting things around diversity. Yeah. Yeah, I think um Hamilton and Bridgerton <laughs> Hamilton is uh, so I like Hamilton, but I also understand why people don't like Hamilton. I understand I know. Why, yeah, why like uh, black and brown people are kind of like no 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 no. Um, because it is very weird seeing other black and brown people portray slave owners and colonizers. And right. um, it has, you know, Hamilton has a, I will have, I have to admit that Hamilton has a great soundtrack. It has a great, it has a great soundtrack. I can admit that, but also say like, you know, I really love uh, George Washington's uh, coming home, that, that part of the play when he's, he's singing and everything like that. And I can also say like, you know, fuck George Washington because he owned over 600 slaves. And one of the, I can't remember the, I think the slave's name was Hercules, who escaped. And George Washington's wife, even after George Washington had died, they were still looking for this, looking for uh, the the man. It was ridiculous. So like, I can say I love Hamilton, but like, fuck George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's, I think that's legitimate. I think that's yeah. fair. I find it, find Bridgerton extremely, I mean, I love it. And I, I love Julia Quinn's books, but I find that the way that, they created the the television show was so fascinating. It's Mm. completely colorblind. And yet in the first season, there is talk of of being a person of color in that time, which is so incredible and so wonderful and enlightening, I think. Yeah. So they, yeah. they kind of, they, they, it's a very fine line that they're threading, that they're walking along. And, and I think that, that there is a balance there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's a balance. I think Bridgerton season one, I think they, I will say, I think they messed up a little bit in season one because they, when I first started watching it, like many people, at least in my Twitter world, like many people, I thought it was colorblind casting. But yeah. when they started talking about race, then it was like, oh, wait. I thought this was it. I was like, wait, I thought this was, you know, a story 
where like characters are just this color or this race and et cetera, et cetera. And they're just engaging with one another. And there is, and we're not going to put all the historical context, re- the real historical context into it. But then there's that one scene with Simon, Lady Danbury, where they yes. talk about race. And it yes. and all of a sudden, as the audience member, you're like pulled out of it. And you're like, oh, so this is actual historical context. That was so my biggest was problem. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like, what are we doing here? You know, there. Uh, I think a great example of colorblind casting is um, Brandy Whitney Houston Cinderella, right? Uh-huh. Where like, Whoopi Goldberg, who's a black woman, is married to a white man, and they have a prince who's Filipino. <laughs> Brandy is black, and um, her her stepsisters or her uh, yeah, stepsisters they're white, and like, and all and all this sort of uh, sort of stuff. But in Brandy and Whitney Cinderella, they never talk about the fact that everyone's a different race. No one ever. They never explain like, oh well. The reason a black woman and a white man can have a, Philip, a Philippine baby is they never talk about that. They they're just like, this is how it is, right? And and that that's what it is. But Bridgerton, when they start talking about it, they it kind of fell they through a little bit. People were, yeah, so people were like, so are we gonna talk about? It? Are we gonna like add a historical thread explaining why all these people of color are like aristocrats now? Basically, I don't know if that's the right term for that time period, but yeah, um, are we gonna explain that now or like what what are we doing here? So I think. I wish in season one they had not had that scene because then they made it very confusing. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. I agree yeah. But it's still great though. I, I do love Bridgerton. I love the soundtrack. Uh, it's great. You should, you know what? You should see, Um, there are a lot of uh, historical fashion vloggers um, on like YouTube. And mm-hmm. I watched one video where they were just talking about the, like the historical accuracy for season one. <laughs> they were very disappointed. They were, I mean, I shouldn't say very disappointed, but they brought up several things like glitter, glitter in this time period. It was very, it was very amusing. (laughs) Do you have any more questions for Natasha? I've had, I've had 10,000 questions and we've taken up so much of Natasha's time. And I'm very, (laughs) very grateful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so Um, much. Sorry. (laughs) The the only, um, the one thing I want to add, because I don't want to hold you all up either. I think might be useful for your readers. Can I input it in real very quickly? Please do. Yes. Yes. I want to be sure. So uh, as a sensitivity reader, as a writer, and just as a reader too, I think one thing I like to bring up when it comes to representation is like, I am a perfect example of like why representation matters. So if you look at my first book series, the first two books in the series uh, feature a white uh, a white female character, so a white main character. But now my current book series, the character is a is a black woman, uh, more reflective of me, obviously, and a black woman who also grew up in the city that I grew up in. And the reason I say I'm a perfect example of why representation matters is because, particularly back in like the '90s and early 2000s, when you were seeing fantasy and sci-fi, there were not really any characters of color, certainly not any any black characters. And I think when I first started writing this writing my first book, which I was very young. Again, I was like 13 when I wrote it and I kept it for years and years. And I would always update it and change it and things like that. I love that. But I think, yeah, I think when I was, when I was young, for me, I, I'm going to say, for me, when I looked at characters who were quaint and quirky and daring, right, they were usually white women. So I think about like characters like Anne of Green Gables, Orphan Annie, right? I, I I don't know why I connected with the redheads. I think it's because redheads are usually like othered in stories. I always connected with the redheads for some reason. I even like um Stephen King's Carrie. <laughs> right, right. I love all I love all three of those characters, hence why my character Serafina is a redhead. But anyway, sorry, I got going with a little rant there. <laughs> I saw those characters and I saw them holding the qualities and traits that I wanted my character to hold. And so therefore, by default, my young mind thought, well, she has to be white. 
that she, the character has to be white. Additionally, for the time period that Serafina was born in, which is like the 1930s, right? I remember I had a moment when I was updating the story, uh, and I thought to myself, if I write this character as a black character, I'm going to have to talk about like I'm going to have to talk about racism. I'm going to have to talk about what it was like to be to live in the Midwest as a black person in the 1930s. And at the time when I was much, 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 much younger, I think I was still in middle school or high school, the idea of having to confront that again when I'm confronting like racism on a daily basis was just so tiresome to me, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, daunting and also just scary too, you know? I think learning about slavery as a Black kid is uh, is a very, as an African-American kid specifically, is a very interesting experience. And so, the, my, and so my character was white. Right. But as I've gotten older and as I've really grown more into like my black womanhood, I guess you could say, I have started to see that when I picture my characters, I don't really picture them as white uh, as white often. I picture them usually as black, the lead characters. And I think that and as I I now, you know, being 29 and kind of wise, but not that wise, (laughs) I can look back and say, like, because even though I love Anna Green Gables and I love Orphan Annie and I love Carrie, I can look back and say that I am a perfect example of why representation matters. Maybe if I had seen a black character, a black character going on these like quaint quirky adventures, right? Maybe then I would have pictured Serafina as a black girl, you know, I could go on and on about that, but I just want to add that little tidbit in there because I've talked about it before on different panels. And I think, uh, I think it's, I think it's important. Well, it's interesting that implicit, we all have implicit biases. Yeah. 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 We, um, you know, I'll, a lot, a lot of black people will tell you, you know, black people are socialized to be anti, to be anti-black, and that there's a lot of historical, anthropological like stuff we could go into with all that. But I have, you know, I'm not the only black author I know who has had a similar experience where, like, you're by when you were younger, by default, all your characters were white, but you became a bit more aware and you realize like that doesn't always have to be the case. Even mm-hmm. though I know why I was kind of taught or socialized to believe that has to be the case, but now it doesn't have to be the case. So, yeah. That's and I think in today's world, representation is is talked about and the importance of it is really talked mm-hmm. about. And I think it's good. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Natasha, you're fascinating. I think we could go <laughs> on for a long time. talking. Yeah, see, that's the thing. We could just keep on talking forever. We but... could just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for giving us the benefit of your experience. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to be here. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and to educate us on sensitivity readers and the importance of them. Yeah. yeah. Next me. week, Meredith, you and I are talking about if you publish indie, is your book set in stone? When are you actually finished? Do you keep going? Natasha, are your books indie or are you traditionally published? I'm indie. So you you need to <laughs> you'll have to listen to this. <laughs> will do if you can change it all the time should you change it all the time all right well that's the conversation for next week as we said last week we're gonna have dave Jesson from entrepreneur kindlepreneur mm-hmm. uh he's coming up and kathy seidel kathleen gillis seidel is reading two uh, my one of my books and one of mary's books and she's gonna mm. do a discussion on theme and imagery. So if listeners want to read along, I'm doing Ellen and the Would-Be Gigolo by Prue Warren. And Mary, you're doing? A Token of Love by Meredith Bond. Bond. 
Paul, available on Amazon. How provident. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again, Natasha. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you for having me. Bye, Mary. See you next week. Bye. That's it for the Writer's Block Party this week. We don't want you getting so drunk on knowledge that you can't drive your laptop safely. But next week we'll be here before you know it, so check out the website at thewritersblockpartypodcast.com. One word. That's where you can find our archive of past podcasts and a place where you can get in touch with Mary and Prue or ask questions for the next podcast. Write with joy, friends, and see you next week. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.